Welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Brian Russell, and today it's my privilege to have as my guest, Sean Palmer. Sean is the, a, the teaching pastor at Ecclesia Houston. He's a speaker and he's an executive coach, and he's the author of the soon-to-be-released book, Speaking by the Numbers, Enneagram Wisdom for Teachers, Pastors, and Communicators. And I want to say that Sean gives one of the clearest presentations on the Enneagram that I've ever heard. You're going to hear that in one of the very first questions that I ask him. And his book is profoundly helpful because he doesn't just approach the Enneagram as a as a spiritual formation tool, which of course it is, but he shows how you can use the wisdom that you can glean from the Enneagram so that you can be a better communicator with others. So he kind of flips the script. So it's not just about us. It's about understanding other people, how other people process information. And then if you're a pastor or a speaker, how you can then use those insights so you're not just literally speaking to yourself, but actually helping the people that are listening to our words to hear the message through their style of processing information. I really love this conversation. I think it's going to stand on its own. So let's jump into my interview with Sean Palmer. Hey, Sean, thanks for being my guest today. Oh, thanks for having me. I've really been looking forward to the conversation. Can you share some key moments in your life and spiritual journey that's led you to today where you're serve as a, a pastor of a, a Ecclesia Church in Houston as a coach and now as an author of this excellent new book on the Enneagram, Speaking by the Numbers in the Enneagram Wisdom for Teachers, Pastors, and Communicators. How did you get here? Yeah, I mean, it's a long story. I, I, uh, I tell a little bit of it in my first book, Unarmed Empire, but I am a, I am just like a child of the church. And I grew up in a really active, involved youth ministry in the late 80s, early 90s, and just had um, a youth minister who poured into me a lot. And I remember very clearly a conversation with him when I asked him about his own vocation. This is probably my senior year at high school, so we're talking like 1992. Um, and he's saying, telling me something like, I just wanted to do something with my life that had eternal significance. And that always stuck with me. Uh, so I entered ministry as a youth pastor, as a youth worker, and more and more, um, people were calling me and asking me to speak and speak into things. There was just some natural gifting for it. And so over the course of a dozen years where I served as a youth pastor, I felt a calling to preach and then entered into that world. Um, and I'm just in love with speaking and preaching, um, which is why I wrote a book about speaking. And somewhere along that line, I was introduced to the Enneagram, had incredible first teachers to the Enneagram, folks like Suzanne Stabile. Um, and so it's just been, uh, it's for me, it has been simply trying to do the next right thing with the gifts that I've been given. I actually came to Ecclesia and I had been serving a small church in Central Texas. And even at that time, I was doing some writing, I was traveling and speaking. Folks would stop by our little church in Temple, Texas, because they had heard me at some conference or something like that. And they said, well, I want to come and, and hear you preach. And they would walk in and be shocked that there were like 60 people in 
in the room. I was like, oh yeah, like this is this is us. And I actually did not want to leave that congregation to move to this multi-site big city. We'd lived in Houston before church. I was really happy. And this is so the opposite of what happens to so many young pastors who have in their sights, like, I want to go to a big church and do all of that. I really didn't want to. And then someone said, told me like, um, what if it is the call of God on your gifts to place that in a larger platform? And who told you that you were supposed to be happy? Right. Um, and that, I know that feels for many people, an uh, opposite story of what either their ambitions are or the way that naturally happens. It's, you know, you, we see young women and men all the time who go from, you know, my, I had a professor in college who said, like, it's, it's funny how someone's always called to a bigger church with a bigger paycheck, right? <laughs> um, but that seems to be like the trans, um, that, that always seems to be the path that folks want to take. And it wasn't for me. And I feel like me being here at Ecclesia at this particular time really is do, like doing what I do has been the call of God. I started coaching because other people started asking me about my preaching and preparation process. And like most folks who coach, initially, my thought was, like, I don't, you know, why are you asking me? Like, I'm not the kind of person that you should ask. Um, but I kind of, I kind of fell into it. The same thing with the Enneagram itself. Um, I just sort of fell into it and I, I pursue things. I like, I love learning things. And then people start asking me about them. And that's, that's just been the pattern of life for me. And talk about, we're going to talk mostly about the Enneagram today with, with your, with your new book, uh, uh, speaking by the numbers, um, for, people that may not know what the Enneagram is. And again, we don't need a long thing. Like how do you introduce it? And like, what, what would just be a few things you could say about the Enneagram in case there's somebody who either kind of knows a little bit about it, maybe just knows their number or has never heard about it. So we can get a little deeper at that point. So how do you, what's an easy way to introduce it to someone? Yeah, I would say initially, so the Enneagram is a map. It's a tool that describes, and it's a fairly ancient historical tool that has been incorporated in many philosophical and religious traditions, typically through their contemplative stream. So if it seems strange or funny or like, where did this come from? It's been around for a very long time. And uh, there are strains of it in South America, South Africa, um, Asia, Europe, um, sometimes going by different names, but it describes nine ways of seeing the world nine ways that we attempt to get love, we receive love, nine ways we have accommodated ourselves. And what it tries to do is to help folks unpack the ways that they have strategized their lives, the places where they are wounded in life, the places where they are glorious in life. Um, what the Enneagram is after is giving us a path toward transformation, given who we are and where we have come from, and the tools that we adopted as relatively young people, some of them downloaded in our wiring from day one um, about how we have moved in the world. So uh, it's got, it's nine types of people. Um, you can find that just about anywhere on the internet. There are some diagrams in the book that I think are particularly helpful about what 
those nine types are, and they are they are known by numbers. Um, so if people have been at a dinner party or they've overheard someone say, well, I'm a two on the Enneagram or I'm a seven on the Enneagram, um, those numbers mean something to people who have had some foundational experience with the Enneagram. So the one we would call uh, the perfectionist or the improver, reformer, organizer, teacher, two would be the helper, caretaker, three would be the achiever or the motivator or the communicator, four, the romantic or artist or the aesthetic, the individualist would be four, um, five, many people call those the observer, they're investigative, uh, they're innovative in some ways, six, um, loyalist and guardian, traditionalist, um, seven um, would be uh, the connoisseur, the enthusiast, an adventurer. Eight would be like the challenger, protector, provider, and nine, the peacemaker. Um, and so folks who know the Enneagram, when you say, hey, I'm a four or I'm a six, they kind of know what that means, but it's nine ways of describing the way we see the world. And then it kind of takes off from there, Brian. So you've got wings in that. You've got instinctual variants or what people call subtypes. You've got um, stress and security. Um, you've got um, triads and stances and harmonic patterns. All of that within and, and even more within the Enneagram system for people to explore. But what's different about the Enneagram, um, because some people say, well, I, I you know, it's, it's just like another personality test. Well, for starters, many of us, myself included, have never, ever, ever taken a test. Um, but the Enneagram gives us a place to go with who we are. So if you take like a Myers-Briggs, for instance, and they say like, I always score as an introvert, for instance, on Myers-Briggs, which is, which is not news to me or anyone who knows me very well, but they'll have questions on it. Like you're at a dinner party, would you prefer to be on the outskirts having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with someone or in the center of the party where all the life is? Well, who's at the party? You know, like, is it a party for me? Like, is it a party for my child? Like, there are so many variables that those types of inventories can't lock in versus an exploratory map um, that helps you self-diagnose, observe, and give you a place to grow. Like, this is what I do when I am fearful. This is what I do when I feel defensive. And how do I break out of that? Um, and so that's the Enneagram and a little bit of why, if you have, if you don't know what it is, why so many people in your world are talking about it. Now, I love that. that I think that might've been the clearest um, brief description of it I've ever heard. And it, and it just, and when you, when you started just for listeners, when uh, Sean starts talking about wings and different things, and um, I don't know if you said the word triad or not, but one of the things about his book is he breaks all this down really clearly with charts and lots of examples, but that, that was, that was almost priceless, that little clip right there. So thank you. Let me, um, you've, Certainly address a couple of things in the book, but some people instinctively kind of push back against something like the Enneagram and um, and uh, mm -hmm. what, what are some of the common objections that you hear about it you know, of like, oh, I'm not just a number or yeah. things like that. And, and how do you how can you how do you help um, I mean, Christians who might be a little skeptical to view it as helpful in the ways that you just yeah. described in your description of it? 
Yeah, well, there, there are uh, so many things. I grew up in a religious tradition where if it if it wasn't in the Bible, for instance, yeah. then it was suspect. So yes. we didn't even we didn't even say that we didn't even use words like the Trinity because you could not flip open scriptures and read about the Trinity. Yeah. So I totally get that. Like I totally get the suspicion around that, depending on the hermeneutic that you bring to Bible reading in your church tradition. What I have discovered as I've gotten older is that I look for God's truth. All truth is God's truth. And so what's more important to me is whether or not something is true, Um, whether or not it's experientially true for me and for people who I know and trust, not in the sense of like everybody's got a different experience and you just call your own experience of the world truth. But when a lot of people that I know and trust who I know and trust love God say this, there's some deep meaning here. So that's one. Another objection is that, well, where does it come from? And the truth is, like, that's not a question that can be answered to some people's satisfaction. But there are a lot of questions that can be answered to people's satisfaction if you want that kind of answer. <laughs> there are a lot of things where I don't really know where it came from. Like, I, I believe in the Noah's Ark story without being able to locate the ark right. um, because there's a deeper truth that's going on. And so though, that's another objection. Um, one is that you mentioned, like, well, um, how can there only be nine types of people? You're right. There aren't nine types of people. It's endless people. And these motivations, and the Enneagram is about motivations, not behavior, are endless. But we have some patterns. So this is like Beatrice Chestnut's book on the Enneagram is really helpful because she kind of outlines like, you know, a three who is a social subtype with a four wing is a different person than a three who is a sexual subtype with, with a two wing. And if they're from America or from Asia, if they are African-American versus being um, from Alaska, like all those things still matter. But when people get inside of the Enneagram, what they discover is that the language and the map that's laid out there has been really accurate for them. And so, yes, people are endlessly fractured and kaleidoscopic. We are all very different. Um, but there are some things about us that are the same, mostly because deep down we want the same things. We want protection and love and belonging and healing. We want lives that matter. We want to know that there's a core group of people who cares about us. And we want to know how to care for that core group of people. Um, and so when you boil things down to the stain, we want so many of the same things is one of the reasons that the Enneagram keeps coming up as true because we keep chasing after those things in some really compulsive and predictable ways. So those are a few of the ones that surface at the top and some ways that might be helpful to think about them. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and one of the things I loved about your book, I've read a fair number of Enneagram books and I use, just from speaking to you, you know a million times more than I do, but I've used a little bit with my coaching and have dabbled a little bit with it. Um, but one of the things I loved about the book is use it. It's a book about communication using the Enneagram. So you kind of flip the script on a lot of the books that just focus on maybe like personal development or just even on spiritual formation. At what point or how did you get to the insight that, wow, I can study the Enneagram and I know you're a three and so am I, we've talked, we talked a little bit about that at the beginning and you clearly say that in the book. At what point did you realize, wow, this Enneagram 
cannot just help me understand myself, but it can really help me under to, uh, be able to communicate better with the other types. How did, how did you get to that insight, Sean? Yeah, there's a story early in the um, in the book about a sermon that I preached here at our local community, and it was about choice. At the beginning of the sermon, I was talking about choices, and I, I stand by everything that I said in that sermon. And uh, actually, it's the, that sermon is actually in the book. It's yeah, yeah, and and um, one of one of our community members who identifies as an eight on the Enneagram comes up to me after, and she and I have a great relationship. She's, we're very frank with each other. And she says to me, that was the most three sermon I have ever heard. Yeah, that was the funniest and feedback I, I've ever heard on a sermon when I read that. But the- <laughs> <laughs> And so we, we talked about it a little bit and it led me to start asking some questions about the way that I was communicating. And um, fortunately for me, we live in America in a three culture. So that's mm-hmm. the way people expect me to communicate. But it was a deeper issue there was, what if I'm ignoring multiple other valid ways of seeing and interpreting the world, and I'm talking to people who are like me, and I'm missing all of these other people whose instincts and responses are different than mine? Um, and because I was studying the Enneagram, I was um, in a, a course and doing some a cohort for the Enneagram. The more I put those things together, um, I thought this might be a helpful tool for communicators. And my wife's a fifth grade teacher, like in her room, she's got all of these different kids who are fundamentally processing what she's saying differently, not only from one another, but from her, um, I always struggled in math in school. And I started thinking, what if um, there was a teacher at a critical time for me who knew the Enneagram and could say, this is the way that you're processing this. This is, this is how I can make it important. I actually just finished recently um, a biography of Lyndon Johnson because I have this, I'm reading, a, I've read biographies on um, almost half the presidents of the United States. And I was thinking at the end of that book, wow, his presidency might've been very different if he had had someone in his inner circle who knew the Enneagram because you could see so many of the things that that he was doing are, are, it was in my my view because of his number. And so I thought, man, um, pastors, teachers, anyone who has anything to say really should think about these responses to or how people take in information and then what they do with it. And so that's how we got to speaking by the numbers. Good. And, and talk a little bit, a lot of pastors listening to listen to my podcast. It's not all pastors, but I know we have a good bit of a few, good number of pastors in the, in the audience. And so when you're thinking about preaching and you're a communicator, you're a pastor, at what point in your sermon preparation, or even maybe your teaching, whatever, whether it's a sermon or a lesson or something, when do you bring the enneagram and the things that the communication piece is in? Is it the does it change the way you read the text, or do you mostly see it once you've worked through the text on how to kind of output it? If that makes any sense. Yeah. So it's definitely after I have read through the text and made some decisions 
about, you know, um, I'm a focus and function guy. I'm, um, I storyboard um, mm -hmm. all of my sermons. So once I'm done with the storyboarding piece and I get to the manuscripting piece, that's when I start thinking about, because what I talk about in the book is that all people have three centers of intelligence, thinking, feeling, and doing. Yeah. We are all dominant in one of those, and we are repressed in one of those. Unless you are a three, six, or a nine on the Enneagram, then you are dominant and repressed in the same center. And so that, when I'm writing the sermon, I'm thinking, how do I communicate to people who are thinking dominant? who they are the ones who are going to make sure that you did your homework on this text, right? Um, and, and I mean, I think just a good rule of thumb for every person who preaches is that no matter what you're talking about, no matter what you're talking about, there is someone in your hearers who knows more about that than you do, right? <laughs> so do your homework. And there are people who are thinking dominant who, if you don't, if you say, let's go out here and solve homelessness in our city, they're the folks who are going to go, well, how many people are homeless in our city? What's being done already? How much is this going to cost? What are the resources? How long, you know, they are going to think through all of that. And if you haven't done your homework, if you can't answer those objections in the sermon, you're going to lose them. They're going to be like, I, I, because it's an idea about trust. Um, there are folks um, who are like in the withdrawing stance and all of this is in the book. And if you don't give them a deep, meaningful purpose, if it's just a data dump, um, then you'll lose them because like, you know, they're the people who are like, so what? Why does this matter to anybody? Um, and then there are folks who are feeling dominant, who if it does not touch an emotional center in them, then it's gonna be very difficult to move them. I'll give you one extreme example of this. Um, there is a preacher that I knew about three hours drive away from Houston, Texas, and he actually got a lot of negative feedback from a couple of people in his 100 member congregation because he never cried, <laughs> right, in a, in a sermon. You know, I'm, um, we've known him for five or six years and he's, he's never cried. And crying is not a prerequisite for preaching good sermons. But what are they saying underneath that complaint is um, this feels hollow, um, both to me and he's and obviously to him because he never gets emotional either. Um, that's, not, that's not an argument to go out there and fake emotion, right? You never want to be inauthentic. But that is, once, once we, we have to deal with the fact that this is actually how people function in the world, right? And the part of the point of the book is to center the hearer and not the speaker. And too many of us in the pastorate have centered, we ask the questions, what do we want to say? Or what do we need to say? And we don't ask the question, what do people need to hear? I love that. Yeah, that's, that's super important just to say it like that, right? It's because some people are like, well, you just said the same thing, but you didn't say the same thing, right? It's, uh, it's moving from, it's, it's moving to the, the people that we serve, the, the hearer, and use the word, oh, I forgot what, you make a distinction between, yeah, you, instead of saying audience, did you say you want to use hearer? Is that, is that, that you or something like yeah. that, right? So talk about that just yeah. for a second, because I think this is a really important point that you make in the book. <laughs> yeah, so, um, 
for me, there's something fundamentally different about an audience and a hearer. Um, an audience is there for a production or a show. It's good. Um, they are the end user. My family has year yearly see, we have season tickets to um, the Hobby Center here in Houston. We go and see every show that's in town. We are an audience. We get to leave and say whether we like that show or we didn't like that show. Um, that's not that's not how the gospel is presented in the scriptures. Um, faith does not come by audiencing. Faith comes by hearing. And the preacher is making a proclamation in the world that is to be heard. And so I know right now there's a lot of there's a lot of pushback about the centering of preaching. And I think some of that is well-grounded. I think preaching has been overemphasized. But it's like, well, it didn't do anything. It's like, is that the right question? The point of the charismatic moment is for our proclamation to be heard, to be heard deeply. And you could only help people hear it if we know how they actually function, not how we wish they actually functioned. And most pastors I know wish they actually functioned like that particular pastor actually functions. Um, so if you are the kind of pastor and you're just like, man, every, every sermon, you know, 52 weeks a year, whoever's preaching, we want an action item, action item, action item. You are just wearing people out. <laughs> like we can't do all of that. But at the same rate, like if you are over-reliant on thinking and you're just doing a data dump um you're becoming pbs church they're only going to be like look around this 90 percent of your church have an advanced degree that probably tells you something about the way that you're communicating um and if you are just feeling all the time and people cry there's a there's a well-known public speaker that i know and before he starts i know that he's going to cry before the end right and so when he starts uh when he starts his messages like i typically tune out because there's a certain level of inauthenticity if i know you're going to cry like this we're at show point so i'm trying to move people especially pastors from this idea that the church is an audience they are participating in the message um, by hearing the proclaimed word and when something is heard when something is heard it is processed and we do something with it. The way we talk about that in the greater society is when someone brings something to us and we go, okay, I hear that. And when we say, I hear that, what we're saying is that's going to change the way that I function. And what I'm aiming for in my own proclamation is to be heard. Fred Craddock said the first duty of a preacher is to gain a hearing. And that's what I want to center. That's good. And I, I thought that was so, so helpful. And the, the thing I loved the best was, and you already kind of alluded to it was the, 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 just the, and like I wrote my, my notes to myself, uh, I need to make sure I'm, uh, I'm asking people, you know, what do I want my hearers to feel? How do I want my hearers to think? What do I want my hearers to do or give them the purpose? And, and, and I, I love that. And so I think I'm hearing you even saying we all have a natural tendency. I'm, I'm a three. So I guess that puts me into the, what, uh, what, what, what am I naturally wanting folks to do? Um, um, what would, what do you say? What's our, what, what would be our default as, as a three? <laughs> yeah. So here's inspire the tricky people, part right? about, yeah. 
Yeah. So here's the tricky part about being a three, a six, or a nine. Yeah, that's right. Is that we are we are dominant and repressed in the same center of intelligence. So as a three, and this is this is what makes so many threes great communicators. Uh, they are with a group of people, and they feel the room. Yeah, that's true. And and uh, you can't explain that to people who aren't wired that way, we actually know what's happening in the room emotionally. Now we don't typically use that knowledge for our own personal sake. We can't name our own feelings, but we can name other people's feelings. So what the temptation becomes for threes as communicators is to pimp stories, which is like, oh, this is a great story. I'm gonna use it because I know people will feel it and so that will work for me because our whole deal is like, I want something that works. So a three, like what's, what's the joke that works? What's the way to get at this text that works? What's, and so what happens is that we begin to um, strip the life out of things, the real grittiness out of things and make them as functional as possible um, for our own ends. So what a three actually needs to do in, um, as, as a communicator is to be present in their own emotional life to what they are thinking and doing. So I, I'll give you an example. Um, one of my really good friends lives around the corner from me. She's a pastor at a church um, not far from here. And she was asking me to give her some feedback on a sermon she did about three months ago. And I told her, and she is extraordinarily close to our family. So I, I told her, you tell stories. She's a three. I said, you tell stories like a three tells stories. Um, you tell stories like they are something that happened to someone else. <laughs> like, like it didn't happen to you. A story about you, you have the ability to tell like it happened to somebody else. How about next time you just try to be present as you tell a story? to your own emotional world as you tell the story. So she actually, this is what's on top of mind. She actually sent me a text this week, wanted me to look, listen to her sermon. She's, I think I was able to get closer this week. Um, so that's one of those places where stepping into vulnerability as a three to actually be present. Matter of fact, the last words I say to myself every Sunday before I, um, before the preaching starts, is to simply be present um, and sometimes i'm better at it than others no, that's really good you know one of my mentors i know i was, I was feeling uh i was feeling like you, you hit you, you hit it right on the out of the ballpark just describing myself and I've, I'm, i'll be 53 here in another couple of weeks so i think i'm actually grown into some of the very ways that you've said and i can actually go back and think even like uh, even in my own guests speaking i have like stories that i know always work and stuff and it's just so funny when you said that so it, it's a uh, yeah, that's uh, that's that was that's that's really good. I know this is helping everybody here in the in the audience. And by the way, if you go, we're not going to get into every number here during the interview just because there's not time. But if you read the book, Sean's got sample messages really in every chapter. You break down different ways of communicating, and it's just um, it's it's uh, so rich. Talk a little bit to um, hey, Brian. Can I yeah. say something about the stories? Oh, oh yeah, uh, yeah. That you just mentioned like stories that work. So uh, this takes a little bit of courage to do. At least it did for me is that every few years I will take some stories 
and I will retire them. <laughs> like I, and I was like, I cannot tell, I will not tell that story again. Um, just because like, cause I don't want, especially if it's, if it's close to me, but not mine. So maybe just a little bit of a, of a practice, um, say like, okay, I'm, I'm going to retire that because I know it works. Um, and I'm going to force myself to into some creativity and some changes. No, that's, that's actually good. That's just a good discipline. So I actually appreciate that. That's really good feedback for everybody's listener that, that speaks because we all have our, once you've been in ministry for a while, you, not that this is kind of crass to say it this way, but you sort of have a greatest hits package and it's time to oh, yeah. maybe put, put some of those songs away and write some new ones. Right. So that's, that's good. It's really good. Um, you talk at some level, I think it's really interesting, like ideally, I don't know if this was the ideal or not. So I'm not going to, that wasn't your word, but you talk about how if you have a team, a speaking team, there might be times when you need a person with a different um, different number, let's just say it that way, um, to give the message. So maybe you need to focus more on facts. So maybe you would go and find the five or whatever. Um, so if you're a solo pastor, though, you don't necessarily have that um, resource most of the time. And you said you were a pastor at a pretty small church, so you, you did most of mm -hmm. the speaking. So like if you're just a, yeah, if you're just a typical pastor across the United States, small congregation, and, and you're preaching, you know, 45 or more times a week, uh, a year, um, what's the advice for the solo pastor uh, that has to learn how to navigate these different, uh, these different speaking styles? Yeah, so there are a couple of things that you can do. Um, the first is you might be a solo pastor on staff, but you're not the solo pastor in your church. That's good. So there are plenty of folks in your church who are love Jesus, who are thoughtful people, who are a different number than you. And uh, it's pretty easy to corral that, that group and say, hey, you know what, for six months, for a year, would you serve me in this way? I'm going to like shoot you things, especially around big, important messages. Right. So you don't have to do this like this piece every week. I'm going to shoot you some notes, some things that I'm thinking and help me think through um, how this communicates to you. Um, that's one way you could do it and take their love feedback that. seriously. So in advance, get um, some another, feedback from folks. Is that, I yeah. love that. Yeah. So I've, uh, a friend of mine also who, who's in Austin, like has Thursday lunch group where they gather cross section of the congregation. They have lunch together at the church and he presents the message for that upcoming Sunday to them and receives their feedback. And that's something you can do um, around numbers. Um, you can also just talk with people. If you know they're a different number, eh, it's Sunday afternoon, it's Monday. I'm going to send a text. I'm going to call, you know, sister Jean or whoever, She's a four and I'm an eight. I want to see like, hey, tell me about what resonated with you, what didn't. And that starts to build a muscle, which is, none of those ideas are bad to do with or without the Enneagram. Right? <laughs> um, that's good. That's true. That's sort of, that starts to form a muscle where you can start to predict a little bit about um, how people are receiving it across the Enneagram uh, and what what connects and what doesn't. And, and I'm okay, like I said, you can you can do that with or without the Enneagram, just like everything else. Um, Enneagram language is not necessary to talk about anything in the world except the Enneagram. We can talk about a whole lot of other things without ever mentioning it. 
Um, but that gets you just inside other people's um, body and brain and heart to see how messages are being received here at a small, um, if you're a small church, like you could just call two random people throughout the week who are there. Um, and it gives you opportunity for pastoral moments to connect with churches, to connect with the church rather. Um, but you also get to hear from them. Um, yeah, it's good. How, go ahead. No, I was, I was going to just going to follow up with a question. Now, I don't know if you do this at Ecclesia, and I don't know if I said that's how you say it, or is that how you all say the church, Ecclesia, or do you say Ecclesia? I forgot what you said. <laughs> yeah, you know, we 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 go we let it go either way. So okay. I say Ecclesia because that's how I was introduced to it like yeah. 20 years ago. Well, anyway, so I'm guessing you all do use the Enneagram within that um, congregation. Do you, do you, if you're going to use this for discipleship and I'm, I'm a, and this can be a long answer, but I don't, I don't, doesn't necessarily be, but do you, do you actually, do you, if to do implement the strategy of bringing some people, you said you don't have to, but if you knew their numbers, so do you actually recommend, or do you know churches or maybe you've done it yourself where you actually get a good block of the church as part of the church's discipleship plan introduce folks to Enneagram so it's like a common language have have you seen that done in several different places or maybe even in your um, own context you know a number of places where you can do Enneagram groups and life in the Trinity Ministries has great curriculum for groups um, we integrate the Enneagram into our premarital courses oh neat um, we are moving to integrate some of our learnings about stances and triads into um um, discipleship, like a three-year discipleship or rotation. We've just come out of a long process that will, that's been looking at strategy for us moving forward. I think that's going to be a, a big part of it. Um, and our staff has worked through uh, AJ Sherrill, who you may or may not know, has a really great book on spiritual formation and the Enneagram. It's a go-to for that. It gives upstream and downstream practices for every Enneagram number. Um, downstream. I can't remember which which stream is easy and which stream is hard in his language in the book. Uh, upstream uh, is easy. We had he was my guest. I've I, I interviewed him about that book. Um, it's been a year or so, so we are familiar. I'll, I'll actually put that in the show notes for everybody. But it, I think the upstream is going against this. I think that's how it works. It's whatever going against this uh, flow is, right? <laughs> <laughs> but it's great. And you know, uh, we had AJ come and spend um, a weekend with staff. Cool. Um, and we want the competencies around the Enneagram, not because we think the Enneagram is holy, but because it, we have, so many of us have found it useful. And on top of that, we have found it useful to have a universal language around self and staff development That's good. For, for us. So, you know, I, when, we, when we onboard new people, I will usually end up having a conversation with them in their first six months if they don't know the Enneagram and don't know their number. And so we've done it in some really informal ways and moving toward more formality. Um, and obviously, I'm probably like everybody in the world, uh, our work on that got a little bit stuck because of COVID, but we're continuing to move in that direction. Good. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate it, AJ. I've enjoyed, uh, spoke with him a couple of different, he's from Orlando originally. So I met him years and years mm -hmm. and years ago and he was a youth pastor, but uh, I do like his book. And, uh, I think, yeah, your, your book and his book together, I think are two of my, I think right now my two favorite books on the Enneagram. I tried the, I have the Richard Rohr book. You see it over my shoulder there, but that's, I always thought that one was kind of hard to read, but I really appreciated your book and, uh, and AJ's was helpful too. Um, again, I want to thank you for your time. I, I have a couple of just final kind of fast questions. I like to ask all of my guests and then we'll, we'll wrap up today. Um, 
So I'm just curious again, obviously this book is just coming out now. Um, do you have like the, the next project you're working on? And I'm always kind of curious and, you know, you may not have an answer to this one. I'm always wondering, is there a book like you're kind of afraid to write that you hope to write someday? Um, I'm trying to discern that now. Um, I lead a small group of, you know, about 10 or 15 pastors, um, all who are African-American pastors, but who pastor in predominantly white mm-hmm. churches. And uh, a couple of people, like if you could see on the other side of my computer here, I've probably got about 20 books uh, sitting here to be read about race in America. And mm-hmm. that might be my next project. Um, it looks like before then I might do a couple of Bible studies with IVP. I'm really interested, uh, in that. Um, and, but more and more people want to do Enneagram stuff. And so I want to make resources available for them, especially just like you were talking about organization and the Enneagram, how do we incorporate that across the board? So the one on race is the one that I'm probably afraid to publish. It'll be the hardest kind of emotionally. I've got a kid going off to college. I think I'm probably at my peak and what I can handle emotionally as a feeling repressed three. <laughs> so that might have to wait a while. That's funny. I get the feeling repressed, repressed three thing for sure too, Sean. So uh, you got a, <laughs> a sympathetic uh, interviewer yeah, here right there's now. Only so. So much, there's only so much I can handle. Right. So I'm, I'm always curious that I'd like, uh, this is called the deep dive spirituality conversations podcast. And one of the things I try to emphasize is the spiritual formation side of stuff. So I'm just curious, some like, what keeps you grounded? Do you have, and again, you can be as vulnerable or, or, or not as, as you want to be on that. I'm always curious, like, what are, what are kind of your practices that keep you grounded for ministry? Well, you know, I have two daughters and a wife, so they do a really good job of keeping me grounded. Amen. So um, here's kind of what a typical day looks like for me. Um, I wake up at five, and that first hour um, is, for me, spiritual reading of some kind. I'm always reading a gospel, and the way that works for me is I just open up my Bible, and I read in a gospel until I feel like God gives me something. Mm. Like, it is not a chapter a day or a verse a day. Like I might read three chapters. I might read three verses. Uh, and that becomes um, God's word for me that day. And I kind of just ruminate on that at different points of the day. So when the girls all leave out for school, which is about 6.30, um, I take the dog for a walk. And I don't know, Mark Buchanan's book, God Walk, I feel like everybody should read that book. Um, if you're in ministry, just about slowing down, walking with God. Um, I, my friend Tara Beth Leach recommended it to me, and it's not one that I would have ever come across, probably had she not. Uh, and the spiritual practice that every, you know, so many religions across the world through time have had a spiritual practice associated with it, but not Christianity, except for walking. Mm-hmm. Like there's, uh, the scriptures are full of people both uh, metaphorically and physically walking. I do think there's something to that. Uh, And then, you know, my workday gets started and I will vacillate between a couple of different practices depending on the time of year. Like we keep in step with the church calendar that we don't always preach through it. So at Lent, I'm doing certain things, certain readings during Advent I am. Um, And those are the core practices. Other practices come and go over the year but those remain, those remain consistent. So I always want to be in a gospel because I want to be, I want to be near the teachings of Jesus. Um, I always want to walk and then I exercise more vigorously than a walk five days a week. 
Love it. Thank you. And now here's probably maybe the hardest question for a person that reads all the time, like uh, outside of the Bible itself, what would be two or three books that have really shaped you deeply? That could be recent or stuff that goes back into your younger yeah. days. Um, that's so tough. So yes. Richard Beck's book, um, Unclean, which is maybe a decade plus old right now, um, fundamentally like reshaped the way that I, um, that I, I saw the world, saw what God was up to. Philip Yancey's book, Disappointment with God, was crucial for me at a very important time uh, and um, one that I keep coming back to. Um, And I'm sure there are so many that I can't. Yeah, Henry Nowen's book. Um, good heavens, now I can't rem remember the name of. It. There's you said that and like a flood of books come to my mind. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, that's been. Um, but I'll tell you one recently that's been kind of uh, worming its way in, into me is uh, Jonathan Sachs' book Morality. Um, and Sachs, you know, was the chief rabbi in England for a number of years and passed away, um, shortly after morality came out in 2020. Um, and that kind of sent me on a Jonathan Sachs rabbit hole. Like he's the NT right of the, of, um, Judaism. Uh, and so that I keep coming back to that, um, so those are, those are three that have been really important. So two from a time back and, and one more recently. Thank you. And Sean, uh, how can listeners best connect with you? Where can they find your book? Where would you encourage folks to go? Yeah, the easiest place is seanisaacpalmer.com. Um, just S-E-A-N-I-S-A-A-C-P-A-L-M-E-R.com. You'll find all the books there ways to connect with me, folks who are interested in Enneagram coaching, either for themselves or their, them and their partner um, for organization, you can find that there. And then from there, you'll find all the other things, Facebook and Instagram and uh, all that kind of stuff that, that we apparently all have to do these days. <laughs> um, but the, the website, seanisaacpalmer.com is the best place to go for all of that. All right. And I want to thank you for being my guest today. I'm grateful for you. Thank you for answering God's call in your life, sharing your gifts and giving us a little bit of time uh, uh, today, Sean. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed uh, spending time with you and talking about speaking on the Enneagram. Appreciate it very much. Oh, you're welcome. And we also want to thank everybody who's listened all the way to the end of this episode of the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. Until next time, uh, remember to show up, pay attention, and know that God's got way more invested in all of this than even we do. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. If you found this episode helpful, would you please share it with friends through your social media networks, as well as leaving a review to help other people find it. If you're interested in any of the resources mentioned, please check out the show notes. And let me again remind you, if you're interested in contemplative practices, my latest book, Centering Prayer, Sitting Quietly in God's Presence, Can Change Your Life, is now available in paperback 
or on Kindle, recommend ordering it off of Amazon. If you want to do a large order, I would reach out directly to Paraclete Press, ask for Sister Estelle, and you can get some deep discounts if you're interested in buying, say, any quantity over of at least three or more copies. You can get good discounts directly from Paraclete. Thank you so much for the privilege of serving you, and we'll see you next time.